When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, October 26th, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jared Dillian, editor of the Daily Dirt Nap. But first, let's take a look at some stories we're following now. Equities at or near all-time highs. Looks like the S&P is closing out the day at 4,574, uh, up 0.18%. Dow Jones Industrial Average closing out the day. Looks like just getting settled here as the numbers bounce around at 35,755, up about uh, 15 points or 0.04% on the day. Uh, We are in the middle of earnings season. It appears to be the strongest earnings season in 88 quarters. Reporting after the bell today, Microsoft, Twitter, Alphabet, and Robinhood. All that and more. Here to discuss this with us, Jared Dillian. Jared, welcome back to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Ash, thanks for having me. Jared, we have so much to cover. We were talking a little bit off air. Let's jump right in and start uh, with Tesla. Obviously, big news yesterday out of Tesla, uh, a significant purchase from uh, Hertz coming online, $4.2 billion in revenue, I believe was the number I saw reported uh, for the Hertz uh, purchase. Tell us what you're looking at when you look at this stock. Well, it's kind of a long story. I hope you got a couple minutes. Um, <laughs> this is This is one of these trades that doesn't come along very often. And I'm very fond of saying, you know, if you miss a trade, it's not a big deal because there's always something to do. But this is this is a, a, a generational type trade that I'm not involved in. And it doesn't really feel good. If you go back to 2019, um, late 2019, I was short. And if you remember at the time, the Tesla Q crowd uh, was getting beer muscles. The, the, the sentiment around Tesla was very negative. They were building cars in a tent. They had all these uh, manufacturing defects. You had Elon getting um, uh, sued for defamation. There's all kinds of negative chatter around the stock. And I looked around at the time and I said, you know, gosh, these uh, these shorts are getting beer muscles. Like they're getting louder and more annoying. And like the more and more strident they got, I said, this isn't good. So I covered my short and I didn't make a lot of money on that short. I covered the short and then, you know, you know what happened afterwards? The stock has exploded like 10,000% and it's turned into one of the greatest trades all that time. Um, One of the, one of the lessons I take from this is to listen to the voice in your head, you know, because instead of just covering the short, I should have gone long. And that's what the voice in my head was telling me to do. And I was a little bit chicken to do it. Part of it was because of all the chatter around the stock at the time. And part of it because it's really hard psychologically to completely reverse a position, either being short and going long or being long and going short. It's very hard to do. 
But, you know, like I said, this is a trade that doesn't come around every year. I mean, this is a once in 30 years type of event and you have to be involved. So walk us through, Jared, what you saw that made you so uh, passionately and sort of flip direction on this. Uh, Tesla, uh, it looks like trading at 1,082 here. By the way, market cap on Tesla stock now over a trillion dollars after this news out that Hertz is purchasing 100,000 cars. Yeah, I mean, really, really what it was, you know, I mean, I'm a sentiment guy. I mean, you guys are familiar with that by now. And I was sort of watching the Tesla shorts on Twitter getting louder and louder. You know, by the way, around that time was when Kathy Wood made her $4,000 call on Tesla. She said it would be a trillion dollar market cap. And by the way, I mean, if, you know, the 4,000 calls weren't listed, I mean, that's split adjusted, obviously. But if the 4,000 calls were listed, they would have been listed at it. They would have been offered at a penny. I mean, it's that turned out to be, I don't know if it was dumb luck or what, but that turned out to be the single greatest call on a stock I've ever seen in my career. Yeah. By the way, correction, I should say trading now at 1,018. Looks like closing out the day there. Uh, so, 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 Jared, when you look at this stock, when you talk about this as a sort of once-in-a-generational trade, uh, the best stock you've ever seen in your life, give us a sense of what it is that you're looking at uh, when you do that. Are you looking at fundamentals? Are you looking at technicals? Are you looking at management? Are you looking at the technology? Some combination of all of the above. How do you think about this? No, I mean, look, like I don't particularly care for the company. Uh, I'm not an ESG investor. I don't, you know, I don't really have strong feelings about the environment. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of problems with the disposal of lithium batteries at some point in the future. Um, you know, so I, I don't, I'm not really attracted to this stock. I'm just talking about the fact that it's gone up like, you know, multiple thousands of percent in the span of 18 months. I mean, that just doesn't happen with large cap stocks. Right. Yeah. It, it's so it's so refreshing to hear you say this, uh, Jared. I think one of the things that the, the great ones have in common is this ability to not get caught, to not get stuck uh, in a prior sort of frame of thinking, a prior uh, paradigm, the ability to actually look and say, hey, look, when these uh, when these numbers change, I change my view. I think you do that, Tony Greer and Jared uh, and uh, and Tommy Thornton do it. Jared, give us a sense of of what that pivot was like as you were thinking it through. Well, the thing with the thing with pivoting is that you have to go through this process in your mind. Like I don't know about, I can't speak for everybody, but I make decisions very slowly. Okay, I'm not an impulsive decision maker. Uh, I, you know, I'm not Paul Tudor Jones. I'm not going to be like short a billion dollar yen and go long a billion dollar yen because I woke up at two in the morning and I had an idea like that's just not me. But over the course of a couple of weeks, um, I, st I started to come around to the idea that Tesla was going to go a lot higher and then it initially gap higher. And then you have this very negative psychology that kicks in. I like to say that the three most dangerous words in investing or I missed it. Okay. So you're going to buy a stock, it moves and you say, I missed it. I'm too late. Uh, and then of course it, it goes up multiples from there. Yeah. 
You know, you mentioned Paul Tudor Jones. One of the other things I wanted to talk about is your view on Bitcoin. Perhaps we could just put up the Bitcoin chart. Um, you know, you, you, I was reading the Daily Dirt Nap. I think this is from uh, 22 October, uh, where you write about Paul Tudor Jones' view. Uh, you write about inflation. You write about the impact uh, from the new Bitcoin futures ETF. Walk us through that trade, how you think about it. Well, the Bitcoin futures ETF, I mean, we can talk about that for a couple of minutes. Um, I was a bit surprised at the amount of volume in assets under management that ETF got in the first two days of trading. They got 1.1 billion of AUM in the first two days of trading, which is the most, it was the fastest any ETF got to a billion. By the way, GLD was the second fastest. It got to a billion in three days. And I think they're both important financial innovations. But one of the things I don't understand about it is, who the hell waits like you know they they look at bitcoin at 1000 and they say well i'm not going to buy this until an etf comes out and then it goes to 60000 they say oh i'm going to buy it now <laughs> like that's the part i don't understand like you know i was long bitcoin from 2019 to earlier this year and i you know i would have loved to have bought it in an etf but i said look like I, there's no etf on the horizon so i got to figure this out on my own so I had to do some homework and it wasn't that hard. And I figured out how to buy Bitcoin on an exchange and I made money on it. You know, so I don't know who waits to buy one of these things until an ETF comes out. Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I was talking about this yesterday with Tony. Uh, it, it, see, it strikes me that there, look, there are those who say uh, this is not the best way for most investors to own Bitcoin for a couple of reasons. One, uh, obviously, there are a series of fees that are attached to this. Uh, there's the potential uh, negative roll costs on uh, owning an ETF that holds futures, uh, and and second, just also the, the the philosophical position of you know not your keys, not your cheese. If you don't actually own the asset uh, as it's meant to be owned uh, on the blockchain itself, uh, then it really does begin to look very much like any other asset class. That's the argument that you hear from the purists in the space who believe the philosophy of Bitcoin matters. It strikes me that there's there are perhaps two potential explanations. Uh, there are people who maybe are prevented because of their investment charters. They're not allowed to invest in anything other than publicly traded uh, U.S. Uh, equities. Uh, and the second is the potential that there are people who just don't understand uh, how to or don't want to uh, be involved in doing things like uh, opening up a Coinbase account or creating their own wallet. So it is interesting, but you do make a great point about you know. How, have you been sitting here watching this rise from, you know, call it thirty thousand to sixty-two thousand, and then you think, well, now's the time to put this trade on? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, you, we did leave out one reason to buy the ETF, is that it makes your it makes your taxes a lot more simple. So if you buy the ETF in a brokerage account, you're going to get a ten ninety nine. It's going to characterize the games as long term or short term. If you just buy Bitcoin and Coinbase. You basically are downloading your trade blotter, and you have to fat finger this into your taxes yourselves. And you're kind of on the honor system because, you know, Coinbase isn't sending a 1099 to the IRS. So from a tax perspective, it's a lot cleaner. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. 
Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Yeah. So another thing that uh, you were writing about in Daily Dirt Nap that I found was interesting was your take on the Fed and inflation. Give us a sense of uh, what your thinking is there. Well, the Fed is, you know, <laughs> I, I've I've watched the Fed evolve. You know, I, I, I came in the business in 1999, and the Fed that we have today is very different from the Fed that we had 22 years ago. Um, you know, I remember working at Lehman Brothers, and, you know, this would be like 2002 or 2003 or 2004, and you'd walk in, and the Fed would have done an intermeeting 50 basis point rate hike surprise, like out of nowhere. Um, and there's, you know, the Fed has had a dual mandate since 1966, okay? We have, uh, you know, price stability and full employment, and everybody knows those two goals don't mix. So, in the early part of my career, the Fed was focused on price stability and basically in, ignored the employment part of the mandate. And now we have a Fed that's focused exclusively on employment and it ignores the price stability part of the mandate. And it's been a it's it's a huge shift. We have a Fed that for the last, I would say three, four, five years, is actually trying to create inflation. And I really think that the institutional knowledge that may have existed at some point in the, in, in, in the history of the Fed about how to fight inflation, I think it's gone. I mean, everybody knows the history about Volcker. Everybody knows what he did. He was yeah. the idiot in the shower. He was, you know, ripping rates 5% at a time. I really, the, the, the institutional memory of that at the Fed is just gone. They, they, not only do they not have the willingness to fight inflation, they don't even know how to do it. And there's nobody on, and the people, by the way, the people that are on the Fed that do know how to do it are getting kicked off. Yeah. Is, is the Fed uh, still in possession of a dual mandate or is that mission creep continued? It's like environmental uh, justice and global warming and economic inequality. You have to wonder about what the impact is uh, on a Fed that seems to be talking about all of these uh, different social issues in addition to trying to balance out the dual mandate, which is challenging enough. Well, I don't want to get too much into the political stuff, but I do find it interesting that all of these other uh, concerns that they have, uh, the way to combat them is to lower rates. They, they, it's, they, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So they, it, it all leads to lower rates in the future. Yeah. You've also written very eloquently uh, about Fed independence. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? So, um, you know, that's another part of it. So in the early part of my career, the Fed was essentially very independent. You know, we had this period of time. It, by the way, it was very unusual for um, Bill Clinton to um, reappoint Alan Greenspan when he became president because, you know, Alan Greenspan was a Republican. Clinton was a Democrat. It was very unusual for a president to keep around a Fed chairman that was a member of the other party. And in doing so, there was a degree of separation. There was Greenspan had a lot of leeway. Uh, he had a lot of independence to do what he did. Fast forward to 2017 when Powell becomes chair um, and Donald Trump is president and Trump is crapping on him on a daily basis on Twitter, telling him that he wants negative rates, telling him that he wants QE. And, you know, eventually the pandemic happens and Powell acquiesces. 
I'm not sure he would have had we not a pandemic. And now Janet Yellen is Treasury Secretary and the Fed is essentially captive to Treasury. Um, you know, I'm going to say that political concerns drive this Fed more more than at any point in the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, and that's that's the one thing the Fed will act if inflation gets to be a political concern. If, you know, Biden looks at his poll numbers in three months, six months, if you look at the Gallup polls and the Pew polls and they say that inflation is the number one priority for voters, that messaging is going to go from Biden to Yellen to the Fed. And you might see the Fed start to act, but only because it becomes a political concern. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about inflation, what your thoughts are there uh, and how you're looking at that. Well, I think it's I, I, I think it's going higher. Um, you know, I've said from the beginning that inflation is a psychological phenomenon. And sometime last year, the psychology reversed from a disinflationary psychology to an inflationary psychology. And, you know, here we are. Um, CPI is at what, 5.4% or something like that. Um, I think that inflation tr trends higher uh, in the next six months to seven, eight, nine percent I'm talking about CPI here. I think PPI will eventually feed into CPI. Uh, I think those inflation numbers are going to get scarier over time. Yeah. By the way, talking of inflation, I wanted to take a look at a clip uh, here on Real Vision. This is on the Essential Plus and Pro tier, all tiers. It's Darius Dale hosting Stephen Van Meter. Let's take a look at the clip. We know energy prices are up. We know that's going to transmit into, you know, like electric prices are going to go up, gas prices for consumers as we hit the winter months. And so you start looking at Overall, I view the financial conditions are relatively tight. I know a lot of the data metrics say the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, but from a monetary perspective, I see that financial conditions are tight. And so now, again, we're back to the fiscal stimulus gone. We know people are back to work. Now, now who knows? Maybe there's going to be a 7 million in, you know, NFP print. You know, and everyone's back to work right now while we're filming. Maybe that's going to happen. Don't know. Mm -hmm. But you start looking at you know, budget for consumers and how do you really drive inflation? At least the way I look at it is it's not just food or energy or housing is I need someone to take their discretionary money and go spend, spend, spend. And what's going to happen is their budget is not only just been impacted by the lack of fiscal stimulus, but now they have higher cost energy. To me, that's going to lead to less spending and ultimately a turnover of inflation as inventory starts backlogging onto shelves. Well, there you have it. Stephen Van Meter's take, rising uh, energy prices, driving inflation higher. Seems as though his view is something uh, akin to kind of a negative feedback loop where rising inflation will drive down future consumer spending, uh, therefore putting the brakes on inflation in the future. It's an interesting thesis. Uh, Jared, let's go back to you. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I saw that, I saw that video. I, I'm, I don't really, I mean, it's just sort of an axiom of markets that, you know, trends usually continue and because of reflexivity and because it's a self-reinforcing process, that seems, seems kind of counterintuitive that inflation, I, I don't understand it, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Let's hit a couple more points here while we took the break. I was looking, looks like big beat for Microsoft uh, revenue expectations. I'm looking at CNBC here. Uh, revenue expectations reporting 22% growth uh, on, the, uh, on the top line. 
major beat. It looks like $45.32 billion actual versus $43.97 expected by analysts. This is Refinitiv data. Uh, Earnings coming in at $2.27 a share. Robinhood, uh, on the other hand, uh, it looks as though Robinhood is uh, not having a great report here. Uh, we're going to go through and scroll for the for the actual numbers, but it looks like they're off almost eight percent here, uh, trading in uh, after hours. Looks like looks like they were down eight percent immediately after reporting. Uh, net revenue came in at three hundred and sixty-five million. It's a big miss on estimates from Refinitiv. Uh, net revenue predicted at 431.5 million that was consensus uh looks like revenue increase year over year but significantly below second quarter revenue uh according to this wire story here from cnbc um jared you know we were talking a little bit about uh inflation before we hit those earnings numbers i'm curious uh, what are your thoughts about gold i know it's something that you've been writing about in the daily dirt nap yeah, I'm actually I'm I'm getting a bit more bullish. Um, you know, I've I've held gold since 2005 in varying quantities. Um, yeah, I mean, what I've seen over the last, I mean, first of all, let's keep this in perspective, okay? Gold top to bottom, you know, from the highs is down about 15%. And everybody is out of their minds. They're going crazy about how gold is dead. It doesn't work. It's not an inflation hedge. And people are people are nuts about this. It's down 15%. And yet at the same time, you know, Bitcoin not that long ago had a 60% drawdown and people were bullish the entire way. So, you know, when I, when I see sort of these mismatches in sentiment, by the way, you know, I saw a, a tweet last week. Um, which basically it was a poll that somebody took. I don't know who took it. Somebody took it in 2011. And of course, 2011 was at the top of the gold bubble. Okay. And they asked investors what would be the best performing asset over the next 10 years. And everybody in 2011 said gold, right? Which now seems ludicrous, but it was 2011. So that's what people said. Gold over the last 10 years has has been down 4%. Stocks have been up 390%. Real estate has been up 100%. It's on down the line. But so what I like to think about today is, because this is contrarianism 101, what if you took that poll today? You know, and, and I think you know Michael Green picked up on this. I actually, I, I said this on a podcast, and he picked up on it and did a poll. I don't know the results of the poll. But if you, if you took a poll today of what would be the best performing asset over the next 10 years, for sure, the number one would be Bitcoin. Absolutely. And then in 2031, we would look back at that poll 10 years later and say, of course, that was ludicrous. It was 2021. Yeah. If we were if we were polling Raul, I'm sure he would say Ether. <laughs> we're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Uh, you know, it's interesting. It, it got me thinking about something else that you uh, touched on in Daily Dirt Nap, uh, which is the Paul Tudor Jones uh, comments uh, about uh, about the relative merits of Bitcoin versus gold as an inflation hedge. Uh, any thoughts there? Well, I, you know, a lot of people are saying that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, it's going up. Inflation is going up and Bitcoin is going up. So there seems to be a correlation there. Uh, I don't know that there's causation. I, th- you know, I think Bitcoin is a lot of different things. I think it could be an inflation hedge. I don't think that's the main reason why you buy Bitcoin. You know, but gold is a very imperfect inflation hedge. I mean, it works over long periods of time. You know, in the 70s, it worked, but there were periods of time in the 70s when it didn't work. So I think over 10 to 20 year periods, gold is a good inflation hedge, not in one to two year periods. So, yeah. Yeah. While we're talking about Bitcoin, I was hoping we could turn for a moment to some of our questions because we've got some good ones coming in from Real Vision subscribers. Uh, the first one comes to us from Remain Calm. Uh, Remain Calm is coming to us from the exchange. This is Real Vision's social media platform. Question is, uh, besides Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, do you think of any other crypto projects poised to have an explosive end of the year? Uh, that one is to you, Jared. What are your thoughts? There? Oh, I don't get other. I don't. I don't know the answer to that. I don't. <laughs> so I have, let me. Ask- I, have, I mean, I, I basically I follow Bitcoin and Ether, and I don't really pay much attention to what's what else is going on out there. Sorry, I just don't. But do, let me ask you this: Do you do you sort of play around and look at some of the others, uh, just sort of for your own personal uh, sort of edification and in, amusement to just get a sense of what's happening in this space, or do you just feel like, hey, for you, it's Bitcoin and Ether are the big players in the space? No, I mean, let me put it this way: Like, you know, I've seen some pretty eye-popping returns on some of the altcoins, yeah, and I start to dig into this a little bit. And what I quickly find out is that I don't have the experience or the expertise to analyze these coins. I don't. Um, Now, if I had unlimited amounts of time and I wanted to dive into this and figure it out, like, yeah, I could probably get smart and pick some winners. Um, It's just not what I do. I'm more of a traditional finance guy, uh, for better or worse. So, I mean, for sure, there's opportunities out there, but... I, I just don't have the uh, expertise. Yeah, if only we all had unlimited time. It's you know it's interesting. You you bring up an important point there, Jared, which is the, the sort of the importance of understanding what is in your wheelhouse and what isn't. I think it's one of the most important lessons that many investors and traders uh, find out the hard way, which is understanding where the perimeters are uh, of the things that you're willing to play in. Uh, and the space where you're willing to say, hey, you know what? It's really interesting, but I don't want to participate. I don't need to participate in that. Yeah, I mean, you you have to you have to figure out what your skill set is. Um, actually, you know, just I'm going to lean on my experience a little bit. One of the great things about being an ETF trader at an investment bank in the 2000s, when you're an ETF trader, you are exposed to every asset class, right? You're because ETFs securitize everything. They securitize commodities and rates and credit, and so you're exposed to all this stuff. If you're, you know, a cash equities trader and you're trading GE, that's all you do is look at GE. And so your view of the world is very narrow. So when I was like 30 years old trading ETFs, 
Like I, I really had a very broad look at the investment world and I got to be an expert on a lot of different things that I wouldn't have been otherwise. And that informs my experience today. Yeah, great. Very fortunate to have had that experience and very well said. I wanted to jump here to John C. from the exchange. Uh, John weighs in and says, uh, feels like we're going to have a bit of a pullback this week. At some point, markets are overextended here. Uh, would Jared's short-term view, uh, what's Jared's short-term view look like on equities? And also, what is he doing, if anything, in the energy trade? Well, I'll talk about the energy trade first. I'm not doing anything at the moment. Uh I, I was very early. Um, I got long energy a little bit before the negative prices, so I experienced a little pain in the beginning. I held it up until about three weeks ago, and I foolishly sold it uh, right before this last run-up. Uh, I basically got uh, bored and impatient with it. Um, so, you know, the last three weeks have been – now, I keep in mind, when I sell something, like, I take it off my screen. Like, I don't look at it because it's a decision. It's in the past. You made the decision. You live with it. And if you leave it on your screen and you stare at it and it moves away from you, then it, it, it you're just tortured by it. Having said that, you know, if you if you go on Twitter, like it's it's just a bunch of people ranting about energy all the time, how we're going to have two hundred dollar oil. So, you know, I, this is like been in my face for the last three weeks. I'm not currently doing anything in energy. Um if there was a pullback of some magnitude, I would like to get involved again because I do think, I mean, this is more of a longer conversation, but because of ESG, I think it's created opportunities for uh, oil prices to go a lot higher. So I am kind of waiting for some kind of pullback, which I don't think is going to come. Yeah. Jared, it's always such a pleasure to have you with us on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. As you sort of hash through all the points that we've made here today, final thoughts for our subscribers and our viewers. Uh, well, uh, we are in a bull market, <laughs> for better or for worse. Uh, I, I mean, I think that the only thing that can puncture this bull market, that can make stocks go down, is a Fed that tightens monetary policy faster than expectations, okay? And that sounds absurd at this point in time, given how dovish the Fed is, but I would not rule it out because of the comments that I made earlier in the show saying that political concerns are driving the Fed, and if inflation gets to be a big political concern, they could act sooner and faster. I do think we're gonna start the taper in December, and I think we'll taper relatively quickly and maybe we'll have a rate hike in the spring. But if we move faster than that, it is mm -hmm. going to really shake up markets. Yeah. So taper first uh, and then rate hike in the spring, potentially, potentially. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of you know, the Fed has a million reasons not to hike and they only have one reason to hike. And they can always find an excuse not to. Yeah. Very well said. Jared, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks. Thanks, Ash. Thanks for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing once again. We'll see you again tomorrow when I sit down with Darius Dale and Peter Bookfar. In the meantime, go check out Real Vision's latest video where Weston Nakamura speaks to the correlation between marijuana stocks and Tesla Bitcoin. I'm looking forward to checking that one out myself. Thanks for joining us, everyone.
you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.